Welcome to Fort Lauderdale's Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholic, uh, Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. We're going to have Tyler come up and tell us our joke. Good evening, everyone. My name is Tyler. Um, I have the pleasure of reading the grapevine-approved grape literature joke tonight. Um, so without further ado, uh, here we go. So Tony and Joe both get DUIs around the same time and are court-ordered to AA. Joe stops going as soon as he gets his last paper signed, but Tony sticks around. A few months later, they run into each other. After some small talk, Joe asks, where are you headed? In which Tony replies, to an AA meeting. Joe says, really? How long do you have to go for? Tony replies, probably for the rest of my life. My God, Joe exclaims, what judge did you have? <laughs> Thank you. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Chris. Thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, in a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation. So please take a moment to get situated, turn off all devices and make noise that might uh, distract others. Take this time to get connected with God, let the craziness of the day drift away, and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. If everyone's ready, we'll start the meditation. The 
Um, please join me in saying the fog light prayer. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out of which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Jordan to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's important to know what it is. Jordan, recovered alcoholic. Uh, Spiritual experience. The term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading show that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it is not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must, achieve, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing fellowship of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of of a power greater than ourselves is essential, is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that an alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essence are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer, Alcoholics Anonymous, 567-568. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up. Sitting back down, uh, this is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane mode um, or just turn them off. At this point, I'd like to welcome our speaker, Joe B.
this step sticking out. Is that like a test, Mike? Hi, everybody. I'm an alcoholic, a uh, member of the Wednesday night big book study group. My name is Joe. Hey, Joe. And it is really a, uh, a real honor to be welcomed back here. Um, you know, it's been uh, the last time I the last time I did a series here was over in a living room of one of the other buildings of the church because of COVID. And, uh, you know, it was, um, it was awkward. It was, it was strange. Uh, but all the same, there's, there's really only one playbook that we talk about here, right? This sign behind me, I think is so neat. You know, it says chop wood, carry water and the water that we carry, you know, any, anything in, in the world that represents life needs water to live. Right. And, um, it's the same for us. You know, the water that we carry is a solution of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now I remember standing up here a few years ago, and I told Mike I needed to bring a hat and some sunglasses because, boy, those babies are bright. I didn't need to get the blue light if I knew that was going to happen. Anyway, um, my story is, 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 is brief, really brief. And uh, I'm sure a lot of you would... would understand that story it's it's you know i went through uh just about the same thing everybody else goes through uh i went through the detox retox program of alcoholics anonymous actually it's not the program of alcoholics anonymous it's those that simply don't want to change so it's the program of those that really don't want to change but they want to get stopped but for some reason they never want to do the work to stay stopped and that's what this thing is all about. I believe that when we recover from a hopeless condition of mind and body, we're, oh, hey, Steve, thank you. See there? Oh, great. Wow, I can see you guys. Um, when we recover from this, this thing, and I'm going to go into all the, the, the things that I've been taught, the, the uh, experiences that I've had through the program of recovery, the things that have changed in my life, the perspectives, the interpretations, the entire psychic change that has come about, um, this total alternate universe from, than the one that I was living when I was in my addiction to alcohol and other things. And, um, but the, the, the bottom line is, is that, that when we recover and we proclaim that we're a recovered alcoholic, uh, it simply means that we stay stopped, that we haven't found the need to stop to start again, right? And that's what, that's what being recovered is. It's, it's, re, it's recovering from the hopeless condition of the mind first and then the, the, the hopeless condition of the body second. You'll always see that. Hope, the hopeless condition of the mind and body. They'll always state that the mind comes first because if we don't recover from the thing that's going on in our skull, we'll never recover from the thing that happens after we put it in our body. It's just the way it is. And anybody here that's a real alcoholic, and we'll talk about that too, define it, um, knows exactly what that means. And my, my problem was is that, uh, you know, I had a lot of struggles through my, my alcoholism. Uh, homelessness, um, alienation from my family. There's a lot of prices that I paid as well as everybody else pays. A lot of things that I lost. And... Uh, do as a result of my behavior, 
You know, it wasn't uh, necessarily caused by drinking all the time. It was caused by my thinking. And my thinking destroyed lives. It really set back family units and was an argument in family units and became a very dark conversation about Joe Bear when the topic was coming up. And usually it was always coming up because there was always, I was always doing something, you know, that I thought I needed to do to get over or get fed or get, get, uh, um, relief that had consequences. And every time those consequences came around, (laughs) who did I call on? Mom, dad, family. And it just created this firestorm within the family unit. And um, none of it was their fault, quite frankly. So the whole, the whole thing about uh, what I've learned is that, you know, first I had to grasp that when I put it in, I couldn't stop or moderate. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't, through self-will, stop or moderate. I had to have another drink. And uh, come to find out they, that Dr. Silkworth... Uh, in his studies and in his experience through treating over 40,000 alcoholics that, you know, he, he described this thing as a, that, 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 that when he talked about the condition of the body, first man to do so in recorded history, where he brought something other than the mind into, into play here, where he um, described this, 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 this thing that happens within the body of an alcoholic is similar to that for somebody that has an allergy to say strawberries or penicillin or, any other kind of allergy that you can have out there. I didn't even really know what allergy meant. And my first, my sponsor, John, who was my sponsor for many years, who's passed now, <clears throat> made me get a Webster's Dictionary. You know, they, we couldn't do uh, the thing on the cell phone back then. Just, this, is back, this is back when uh, cell phones looked like bricks. And uh, so, I mean, he, he had me increase, number one, my vocabulary, and increase my knowledge as to certain words because he would always tell me to read the words before and the definition of them and the words after the word in question. So an allergy, uh, you know, it, it says in um, Webster's that it's an abnormal reaction to a food, a beverage, or a substance. Some got the bullet in all three areas. I happen to have that bullet in the middle now too. The allergy to food. <laughs> When I put it in, I can't stop. Ice cream. When I put it in, I can't stop. But I don't put in alcohol. Where when I put it in, I can't stop. See, every allergy has a manifestation. There's symptoms that result from the allergy to a food, a beverage, or a substance. And in our case, it's either we're addicted to some kind of substances or addicted to the, to the substance of alcohol. So all the debate about you know, I'm an addict or I'm an alcoholic. Or, you know, it's a useless debate. It's, not, it's, it's just a, it's a useless debate. When you're, if you're able to look beyond that into the information in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and see that they're talking about this allergy to whatever you're allergic to where when you put it in for an alcoholic or a drug addict, you can't stop or moderate. One takes another, takes another, takes another, Right? Think about it. I mean, all you have to do is look over your shoulder into your past and see that that's a fact, right? But that's not the biggest issue. And we're going to delve into the doctor's opinion a little bit here. And it talks about this other thing, this desire. 
Dr. Silkworth calls it a desire. Um, later on, Bill calls it an obsession. And uh, these desi- this desire comes from here. You know, my sponsor taught me everything emanates from thought. Everything. He says you feel or you think. Then you feel or have an emotion based on that thought. Then you take an action based on that feeling or emotion and you get a result. Right? But everything, everything that, 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 that happens after the thought, you can always look to the ancestor of the feeling or the emotion or the action taken or the result that we got. There's always the ancestor of thought. It's the ancestor to all things, right? So I don't, you know, thinking about that, it's like I had to change my thinking coming in here because the obsession of the mind defined again, this thought that overcomes all other thought. To the contrary, I can have evidence of all the devastation, all the prices paid, all the losses, all the destroyed hearts, all the loss of uh, of everything, everything that I held dear in life. And there can be a thought that comes into my mind or a group of thought, like a conversational thought that overcomes all other thought to the contrary. I can't remember with sufficient force what it did to me. I can only remember what alcohol and drugs did for me. And when it gets into the latter stages, it's simply this relief. I need a relief from this internal thing that was going on with me that I had developed that through the actions and through the thoughts and the actions that I took and the things that I did to hurt my family and destroy their trust and alienate them from me and have them kick me out of their city where I was born resulted in the way I was thinking. And... I couldn't bring into my mind, it says it in the book, I couldn't bring into my mind with any kind of recall what it did to me, all those things. I could only remember what it did for me. And all those things that I did had symptoms too. All the lying, all the cheating, all the manipulating, all the stealing, all the inconsideration, all the greed, the lust, all that stuff that played into me being a really dark subject of conversation. All that stuff, I could not recall. And for the foolish idea, uh, and, and what happens is, is when you do that to people, you start to, you start to in, 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 inhabit certain things that are really dark, like, like uh, regret and remorse and terrible fear. The feeling like you're never going to be forgiven. You're never going to succeed. They're so used to the detox, retoxing, building the trust up and spitting it out and tearing it down and lying and cheating, habitually lying, right? These things cause tremendous guilt. They cause shame. The things that we do in order to feed our addiction, in this case, to alcohol or any other substance for that matter. When we start to harbor those things, we think they go away in time. They don't go anywhere. They start to cultivate. And we call it the internal condition. It's just something that fits. This inside conversation that I have going on about me and the worthlessness that I feel and the emptiness that I feel and feeling like I'm never going to get this thing 
And I'm certain other people are looking at me like I'm a loser. Because I, in effect, I have been losing for dec- for years. Many, many years going in and out of this program. That, that affects us in a very dark way. It starts to have, have terrible emotional and mental uh, effect on us. And the worst part about it, people, <clears throat> is when we come into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, pretending to those we're living with, or those that we're seeing, or those that we cultivate friendships with, that it doesn't exist. How you doing, Joe? I'm great. And be dying inside. And we think that we can mask it. We think that we can conceal it and camouflage it. Where if they don't know, they're none the wiser. And the whole time I'm starting to develop a new lie. The person I want you to see. Because I'm sure you have the power to make me feel like a somebody or a nobody. And I end up in this incredibly dark place. Wondering, well, I'm st- I stopped drinking and going to meetings. That didn't work. I got drunk again. I didn't know I was feeding a much larger beast on the inside. Pretending that it didn't exist on the outside. Which meant I had to develop masks for everybody I know. Everybody I see. And what happens is, is I start to actually make you the God of my understanding. That if you'll just like me, and you'll just pay attention to me, and you'll just believe me, and you'll just respect me, or you'll think I'm successful, or you'll think I'm this, or you'll think I'm that, that maybe I'll feel better about who I am. But I still have to lay my head on my pillow at night. Knowing that if you give me any consolation and you buy any of that game which it is you're giving it to a fraud and it further chips away and chips away until basically i get to the place where i literally can't stand myself i hated my guts when i got here i couldn't stand me i couldn't even look in the mirror i couldn't look in my eyes it felt filthy in there and when you get to that place death becomes a little bit more attractive than trying to fight through this thing and you're doing what people are saying, 90 and 90, and just don't drink good meetings. You'll be okay. Don't pick up no matter what. All the stuff that I've tried over and over and over and kept getting worse and worse and worse. I was a, a homeless vagabond on Troll Avenue for almost 16 years, on and off the streets. Troll Avenue, by the way, is Broward Boulevard. Everybody's got one in their state. Everybody's got one in their city. I'd get shelter wherever I could just for, just for shelter that night and maybe a bite to eat and a shower. And then get up when they boot you out the door in the morning and uh, aimlessly wander nowhere. Just what an existence that is. Right? So when I tell you about my past, my past is, is, is maybe not the same as far as the where's and the when's and this and that. But deep down inside, that private conversation that I'll let nobody know about. That one that terrifies me. That if you know what I know about me and if you felt the way I feel about me, you would hate me. Because I hated me. And where do you go from there? Because that's a hopeless place. I've tried everything everybody's saying. Well, that's not true. Because people did say, have you done the steps yet? I said, no, didn't do them. No, I haven't messed with that. 
I was too smart for that, but I was dying. (laughs) The life preserver was thrown to me, right? Many times I'd see them on the the window shades on the wall. I'd see that stuff. And I said, how could something so, what looks so simple catapult me into a new existence? Well, that was simply ignorance talking. You know, that was contempt prior to investigation. Thank you, Herbert. I was wondering why John called me Herbert for so long. When I came in and he said, Joe, he says, it's what you know that's killing you about everything. And it's what you don't know it's going to save your life. I said, what are you talking about? He said, okay, Herbert. And it was like, who is Herbert? Until I finally read the spiritual experience in the appendix. Contempt prior to investigation. I lived there. I was parked there. I couldn't get away from there. I just couldn't. So we come in and, and, and we're, we're led to the book. Eventually we are led to the book. Because everything else has failed in our lives. If you're fortunate and you get to a, a meeting like this. My, you know, Mike has done such a fabulous job and brought so many speakers here. And there's, you know, and they, but all of them always reference this playbook. That I was never willing to look at. I was so addicted and entrenched in my own playbook. The way I thought it needed to be. The way I thought it was. Same strategy. Same method. Same approach. Every time I'd get picked up off the street. Or out of a hospital and go into detox. They'd say well what do you think you need to do? And I'd say I know what I need to do. And they'd, they'd look at me startled. Like how can you say that? We see what you know you can do. You know, we got evidence, right? I'm leaving a trail of evidence 25 miles high. My family look at me like a deer in the headlights. What what do you mean you know what you need to do? You can't make that statement. Because nothing you've done has worked. And I was always insisting on doing it my way. Listen, I was always surrendering like this. I'm surrendering. I'll go into that halfway. I'll go into that, you know, whatever. Right? I'll go into that structured environment. I'll let somebody boss me around. But there's conditions. I always had conditions. Always had to negotiate. I was literally fighting for the right to die. And didn't even know it. I was fighting to get back to that dark place. Where it becomes comfortable. Where it becomes comfortable because everybody's caring for you. You're so dependent on other people. You can't depend on yourself anymore. You, you, you know it in your mind, but you can't quite make the declaration that if I have one more thought, it'll probably kill me. Where you run out of any ideas anymore that bear any kind of fruit. Or any kind of positive reaction. And I always wanted to take credit for people leading me into detox. Or, you know, they, they help get me stopped. Human power can help get you stopped. But not a one could keep me stopped. I couldn't stop starting because of the way I thought. So I've had all that. And, and, and that's qualification enough. So it's really time to like, you know, I, I knew the what's. I knew what I was. I knew what I had to do. You know, I, I knew I'd have to make that 
you know, concession to go here or there or whatever people were telling me to do because I needed their trust. I needed their support. I needed their, you know, a little, little money, help me out, get me some cigarettes. You know. I was, I was such a, I was a zombie, right? I used people up. I gained them and gained them and gained them. I was a habitual liar when I got here. I had nobody's trust when I got here. You couldn't trust me to do anything because I wasn't trustworthy. Honor, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't even know what an act of honor would be except maybe some military, you know, that, you know I mean? I was just clueless. That's to be an honorable human being with integrity and, and uh, you know, principles, principled living and boundaries. I didn't know what that, I didn't know any of that. I was whoever you wanted me to be just so you'd let me have what I thought I needed from you. So um, John brought me right into the book. And, uh, you know, and the first thing he told me in the realm of everything, it's what you know that's killing you. And I told him I came over here from Clearwater at that time. I went over there initially in the detox, retox mode for a girl. And that, that worked out just the way it did every single time. In disaster. So then, crawling my butt back over here, John was there. And um, the journey began. And uh, the first thing he did was he said, read the doctor's opinion. He says, but there's a first a couple things I wanted to point out to you as, as he pointed them out to me. He says, let's just go to that forward or that preface for a minute. That first thing that's in the book, the first thing you come to before you get to page one, one of those things which I never read. And it says this book is a textbook. This, this, this volume has become our basic text. Well, to me, I, I recall where I got textbooks, and that was like, you know, in grade school and high school. I got, I got textbooks to, you know, educate myself in math and history and, you know, algebra and all that kind of stuff. So I knew it was in, I knew they were, what textbooks were. I just didn't, Describe them as books of instruction, right? They weren't books of suggestion. They were books of instruction. So it tells me right up front what this book is, 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 if I take a view of this book and agree that it is a book of instruction, I'll approach it differently than a casual read or, you know, yeah, I did the reading. Yeah, like, I'm, you know, I, not paying attention while I was reading, Right. So it was a book of instruction that would lead me from a point to a point. And um, then, he, then he took me to the foreword of the first edition, which has some pretty impactful information in it, I think. Remember, I'm only, I'm only talking about what was impactful to me, and hopefully it'll be impactful for you. Um, So immediately going from that, it's that it says that the, the the book is a basic text for our society, and it has helped and has helped such large numbers of alcoholic men and women to recovery. There exists a sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the first portion of this volume, describing the AA recovery program, has not been touched, not been changed or altered in any fashion. It's that powerful. I mean, it's that important. And then in the two pages over, it says, 
We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered. uh, There goes that argument. Have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Mind first, body follows. The body always does what the mind tells it to. Always, right? To show other alcoholics, that would be me, precisely, not vaguely, not sort of, but precisely how we have recovered, exactly how they recovered, is the main purpose of this book. So first I get told it's an instruction manual, right? A new playbook, if you will. Um, And that the main purpose of it is to show me how to recover from this deadly disease. I didn't know it was a deadly disease until I read Dr. Silkworth's opinion, right? And in the, in the very first part of this opinion, I, I just, I, I marvel. I'm in such awe of Dr. Silkworth. You know, this little non-alcoholic doctor in New York City and his love for alcoholics, treating alcoholics, the only place on the eastern seaboard that treated alcoholics of this nature, to this nature, right? To help get us undrunk. And unfortunately, send us back out without a solution. But that came from a different doctor over in Europe. And we'll talk about that too. But he had such love for us. And um, it, it, it says that, of course, we're going to take a, an opinion from a medical man a, a heck of a lot more, more valid than some other drunk talking to us. Like, let me tell you what I mean. Yeah. Well, you know. That whole conversation was a conspiracy theory. It's like, I'll buy your doo-doo if you buy mine. So we just ran victim stories back and forth. You know, I was always looking for a victim to talk to. Let me tell you about my miserable life. But that meant I had to listen to their miserable life. And you had to be drunk to do it. So it says, in late 1934, he attended a patient, though he had been a competent business. We know he's talking about Bill Wilson. Competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. He saw Bill Wilson three times. At least three times that we know of. Possible fourth time. But three that we know of. And it says, in the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas. Well, I don't know if anybody ever, like, kind of looked at that statement and said, What's exactly, what exactly is he saying? He's literally telling us that Bill Wilson got some ideas that he never had before in his entire life. And when he received these ideas from Ebby Thatcher, all of a sudden, they become... See, when somebody gives us ideas that we concede to our innermost selves, that they land and they land in our heart and they become fact inside us, right? That's what conceding means, to make fact as one's own, Right? It says um, he didn't have these ideas, but when he heard these ideas from Ebby Thatcher, he says, that's exactly my experience. That, that's exactly what's happened to me. It says, as part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics. See, so he talked about these ideas as conceptions. So in other words, the conception simply means the genesis, the origin of where the first time you heard about something or some buddy, right? Or some spirit is the conception that we have of that, con- of that person or, or thing or what have you. It just simply means where we first heard about it, and entertained it as something that was valuable to us, right? Or, or could be something that 
um, we heard about but didn't give it much thought beyond that. But it's just the first place that it was born to us, right? Revealed to us. So he, here he says that as part of his rehabilitation, he, com- he com- commenced to present his conceptions, these ideas that he got for the very first time that became fact of his life and he conceded them to other people. And so on and so And here we are. We're beneficiaries of those ideas that initially were passed to Bill that he never had considered them before. You're going to see, at least I do, divine imprints all over this book. Right? All over it. Where it's not accidental. It couldn't be accidental. So, um, anyway, that's, that's become the basis of our deal of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then, of course, in the following page, it says, in this, in this statement, he confirms that we who have suffered alcoholic torture, certainly I'm sure everybody in here has experienced that if you're here tonight. Maybe you're here with a friend, but, uh, and this is good information also, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. You know, back in those days, and still to a large degree today, people looked at us like immoral Lack of will sinners. They thought it was a will issue. God, if you could just stop for them. If you could just, you know, if you could just stop for that job. I mean, you know, normal people are looking at what we're standing to lose and they're going, why would you even think about a drink? Right? They thought it was a will issue. Surely you can stop for her. Surely you can stop for him or them or whatever. Right? But this is the first time in recorded history that we know of, where a doctor has literally gone one step further. Certainly those things are true to some extent, right? It says that in here. But it didn't make sense to us until he said that, it, that, uh, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So he's bringing the body into play here. He's saying something happens in these people that doesn't happen in a normal temperate drinker or the normal hard drinker. That when they begin to drink alcohol, they lose all control over the amount they, they drink. Right? He's saying something happens in you guys that doesn't happen in normal people. Like normal people, they'll take a drink, and all of a sudden they start to get woozy, and they go, oh, oh, ooh. Can't do any more of that. I'm feeling a little uncomfortable, you know what I mean? It's like I got to go to work tomorrow. Like, what? Do we ever worry about work? I don't think so. I didn't. If I even had a job, right? But that was not even on my radar. They get this slightly tipsy, out of control feeling. They go, oh my God, I'm not, I don't want any more of that. No, they push it away, right? Not us. We get happy feet, right? We get this slightly tipsy, in control feeling, and we have another, and another, and another. And we don't even realize that we're drinking to overcome an allergy we can't overcome. How about that? Right? And then the next thing we know, we come to somewhere someday. And we're aghast. Oh my God, how could that have happened? And we don't even know why. I didn't know why. Right? So, he brings his body into this thing. And, uh, you know, he says here, it didn't satisfy us to be told we couldn't control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life. We were. Or that we were in full flight from reality. 
Yeah. Or we're outright mental defectives. <sighs> yeah. Right? I mean, people don't do stuff that we did. The lying, the cheating, the manipulating, the stealing, and the, and the gaming, and the, you know, all that deception. Right? Out of good consciousness. Can't do it. Right? I don't think you can do it. I never, I never did do it. I, so I was definitely a mental defective. Something happened in my mind that couldn't bring into my mind sufficient force, suffering, and devastation, and annihilation of all things worthwhile in life from a minute to an hour to a month ago. I could only bring into my mind with sufficient force the memory of what it did for me, and it gave me relief, it numbed me out, it helped me forget, it helped me talk, it helped me do all kinds of things that it really didn't do. Like, how can it make you talk better when I, every time I was drinking I had marbles in my mouth? You know what I mean? I couldn't, I couldn't even talk right. But yet my mind says you, you, need to, you need to be able to be slick willy for that girl over there, whatever. It's like, and I look like a complete idiot, I'm sure. It never, it never worked unless she was exactly the same amount inebriated as I was. So um, what we're talking about here in the doctor's opinion is really the physical thing, this, this physical allergy, this, this inability to stop once we've started. And, and, and the craving can only come about, Dr. Silkworth called this thing a phenomenon of craving, that this some, something that happened when we ingest alcohol um, that doesn't happen in anybody else, where our body demands more alcohol, right? It's not like we decide to have another drink. We just have another drink, and then another one, and another one, and another one after that. And, and it, 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 no matter how much we s- declare that we're going to go out to do, like, I'm going to go out, I'm just going to drink a six-pack. Or, uh, you know, I'm just going to, you know, go out for an hour. I'm just going to go out with a boy. I'll be back at 10. Um, and really mean it when I said it. But it's usually followed by, I'm so sorry. I swear to God, I'll never do You know what I mean? It's always that groveling. He said that we go through these things emerging remorseful. Does that fit the bill? I mean, it, I was always remorseful. And I was always sincerely remorseful. Um, but he says about these allergic types, which, uh, which are us. It says, um, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol in these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. They say about one, what is it, one, uh, one in ten are alcoholics. Throughout the, throughout the country, what, one in a, what is it, Mike? Is Mike back there? Coffee break? No. Um, we'll get that stat for you. Probably escalated since the last time I quoted it. But um, it says that, uh, that, that the phenomenon of craving, phenomenon is simply a word that means and is defined as a word that they use for an unexplainable occurrence. Right? It's a phenomenon. It's like nobody can explain it, but it happens, right? And um, so this craving they're talking about has since been proven. You know, when we were deemed a a disease by the medical society and, you know, um, money was available for 
tests and trials and clinical trials and all kinds of testing on alcoholics and you know alcoholism and so forth. Um, they determined that the phenomenal craving was actually a factual craving, that our body uh, metabolizes alcohol in a, in a way different to normal people. Uh, the way we, you know, sugar and all that stuff, it doesn't really matter when you know you're an alcoholic because you put it in, you can't stop. I mean, that's basically it. It's pretty simple. But the craving doesn't happen until I ingest alcohol. So if I'm walking around, you know, four days, five days removed from alcohol saying I'm craving alcohol, that's not true. The alcohol has been removed from my body. So what is it actually? Well, it's that desire that he mentions in here. We call, Bill called it an obsession. I'm obsessing over it. And I'm still walking around with that internal condition of all that muck that's dark and nasty and making me do things I would never ever do just for a little relief, right? So, um, it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while, while we admit it's causing injury, while admit it's, we admit it's injurious, right? We cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. Then the blame game. We, this, this is where the blame game comes in. We're blaming everybody else and everything else for the reasons we drink the way we drink. And that's not true. I mean, we can, we can use it. But it's kind of a victim story. You know, they made me do it. I'm blaming it. It's like we walk around with this big V on our forehead. I did. Blaming everybody else and everything for what I was doing. Right? But I didn't understand the nature of this thing. It says we put it in. Because we like the effect. Well, what is the effect? I'm going to tell you what the effect is. And it's an effect that I've been looking for all my life, way before I started drinking alcohol. And that was a, the effect of ease and comfort. I never felt quite comfortable. I never, I always felt kind of awkward. Always felt kind of uh, different. Always felt that I needed to be somebody else fit in. I needed to be somebody else to have you like me. I needed to be somebody else. I, so I had a mask for everything, right? I never could be me and get the things that I thought I needed to like be popular or have a good reputation or people, you know, uh, respect me or think highly of me or whatever, right? So like that was my truth that it was your fault that I drank that way. But when in reality, it says it right here. It says, to us, our alcoholic life seems the only normal one. We are restless, irritable, and discontented. That means whether we're drinking or not. That means whether I'm intoxicated or not. I'm restless, irritable, discontent. Unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort. There it is. There's some kind of upheaval and conflict going on on the inside. I can't describe it. I'm pretending it doesn't exist to everybody. I'm trying to mask it with everybody I know, even people I don't know, right? And it says, unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. So when I discovered alcohol, the game was on and never, and never to cease until I actually got into a different way of recovery here, <laughs> which is the only way of recovery. Right? So, 
Ease and comfort. That's what I've been looking for. That's why I drank alcohol. Relief. Forgetting. Numbing out. It says this comes, and, and the only thing that I can remember is that it comes at once. I, see, I knew alcohol worked. I knew alcohol worked when somebody pissed me off. I knew alcohol worked when, like, I felt awkward in a, in a, in a crowd. I knew alcohol worked no matter what. It just seemed to lower my inhibitions, and I really didn't care. You know, it's like all of a sudden what you thought of me kind of like left me, right? And then I was a complete idiot. And, uh, you know, when I got really intoxicated, it was like, I didn't care if you remember, but people remembered. And, um, and I couldn't. So it says uh, after they, and it says this about this. This is what's really key here. This is the why of it, right? After they have succumbed or given in or put it in, ingested it, right? After they have succumbed to the desire again. So they're saying succumbing to the desire means the desire comes first. And that comes from my thoughts. Which in turn gives me feelings and emotions that I succumb to, put it in. It says they go through the stages of a well-known spree or binge, emerging remorseful, right? With a firm resolution not to do it again. I swear, Mom, I'll never do that again. Can you give me 20 bucks? I need to, you know, whatever. I was such a phony. I had no resolve. It says, uh, with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated. If anybody's in here, that's in here, that's been going through this rodeo, this detox, retox nightmare, where you just can't get stopped and stay stopped. Right? So remember, we stopped a thousand times. The problem is we couldn't stay stopped. We couldn't stop starting, right? If you've been going through that deal, this is exactly why. And then this is what it told me. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, that's an entire thought change, a.k.a. spiritual experience, a.k.a. spiritual awakening, a.k.a. profound alteration in my reaction to life, a.k.a. transformation, whatever you want to call it caterpillar to the butterfly effect there's very little hope of your recovery and that's exactly what we have here when we get into the solution that is what is put before us laid at our feet that you can live two lives and die once where you can go from a caterpillar in your way of thinking to a butterfly and an outrageous empowering life you've never even can conceive of where all of a sudden you do develop the boundaries and you do develop the principles where people trust you, where they're convinced that you know what you're talking about. This is the water we carry. This is the hope that we bring to those that are still suffering. And if anybody in here is suffering, and I know there probably are some that are just abstinent and wondering why things aren't getting better, why I don't feel any better, why I don't feel these things that people are talking about. There's a very, very simple reason why. Not only do we get to know what it is that's composed of this death sentence, but we get to know why we have a death sentence and what needs to take place in order to move away from it, to actually live, right? So I love this last piece in the doctor's opinion where it talks about, and everybody that's been around a little while has probably had this experience, where he talks about this guy that came in for pathological uh, mental, had pathological mental deterioration. We know that as wet brain. 
He says he lost everything worthwhile in life, was only living one might say to drink. He frankly admitted and believed that for him there was no hope. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in this new playbook, in this book. One year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but there all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. The butterfly. I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. Before. To me, he was a stranger. And so he left me. What's possible? We're going to go into more of the step one next week, but what's possible here? What's possible is introducing you for the first time to a family that has never known you. To friends that have never known you. To children that have never known you. Or at least who you were created to be. To brothers and sisters that have never known this person before. And what a spiritually uplifting, empowering thing that is to see the dead come alive. This is available to you if you're suffering from this thing. Stick around. Come back next week. We have more great news for you. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. That was awesome. Um, We're going to have our secretary report. Uh, Welcome, Joey. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Joe. Great to have you back, man. Um, All right. So I am Joey, and I'm your recovered alcoholic. I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary. Hey, Peter. All right. In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, we have a few members passing around the baskets. Uh, also, we have a QR code in case any of you tech-savvy people don't have a dollar, still want to contribute. Um, we have that uh, as well. Uh, it's attached to our Venmo here. So. As they're going around, I've asked Robert, a good man, to come up and read the recovered statement. We read this to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what exactly it means to be a recovered alcoholic. So please welcome Robert. Thank you. Robert, recovered alcoholic. We're not cured of alcoholism. We're recovered but not cured. The presence of this conflict is some alcoholics. If we are cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime, but we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. We are now seen where alcohol is concerned. 
Consequently, we have recovered. Forward to the second edition, Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sobered once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75-plus percent success rate. All right, so at this time, is there anyone needing a sponsor out there? Hello. I'm sorry? Mary, welcome. Awesome. Thank you. Anyone else? Mary, so after, if you just want to come over here, we'll have someone come up to you and give you the, hey, how you doing, and bring you to, on the journey here. All right. Um, okay, someone uh, driving a, ja- a Toyota. All right, well, I'll get you after. Yeah, I'm not going to steal it. Yeah, not today, yeah. One day at a time, though, huh? All right. Um, uh, sorry. Uh, now, any recovered alcoholics out there? Beautiful. Please, one of you, ideally women, but, you know, whatever, however it works. Uh, come, come see Mary over here, please. Um, beautiful. So we have some announcements. Intergroup um, is where you can buy AA-related literature, medallions, also responsible for our where and when and scheduling the AA hotline. Stop by and pay them a visit. BCIC is responsible for bringing meetings into places where people like us cannot get out to an AA meeting, such as jails, detoxes, rehabs. They meet monthly uh, to organize at the 12-step house. Any BCIC members? Peter, hey-o. Hello, sir. So come see Peter. He's BCIC, and he will, if you have any questions or want to get involved. Wednesday night study group, uh, Joe, um, awesome it's an awesome meeting. I used to go to it um, back in the day, and uh, it's a beautiful thing. So it's back on in Pompano. Yeah, all, we have flyers in the back, by the way, um, for all these things going on. Uh, Joe will be here for uh, the 12, going through those 12 steps. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, Monday night, come visit in the third story of this building. Um, we have a, a big book study. We go through page by page, and it's really an awesome experience. Um, tables in the back um, we're going to have six of them looking like that Mike Chase is an operational guru he'll walk you through and James we have a whole just see a home group member if you all can uh, help with that that'd be terrific thank you and uh, yeah we do have CDs mugs large print big books little red books and big book dictionaries for sale in the back with some flyers check them out you want to purchase any see a home group member we meet every thursday promptly at 7 15 come early for some fellowship at 6 30 we ask you to be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells thank you all see you next week thank you, thank you. 
Um, we have tonight's sessions and all of our past speakers' uh, podcasts online for free at alcoholicsandgod.org. Um, I'd like to invite everyone to our Monday night big book study. And those who wish to thank tonight's speaker, please line up down the center aisle. Um, thank you again, Joe B. And please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
Here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Now, growing vines, they 
twist and turn each way, flowers blooming all the time outside my door. Never before. I had to change everything to realize that today is the best day of my life. Cause this broken man I traveled far and wide through the great divide through his own heart, yeah. Just about to start. So I face each day in a brand new way. Show up and plug in my guitar. And I play my songs. And people sing along. And stomp their feet and raise their arms. And here in this moment that we share. song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye.
Just won't say.